0: Hello, I'm Kevin Kaners, and welcome to Creating Change, Perspectives from Social Entrepreneurs, a podcast about international founders who are all alumni of Berlin universities. Over the last decade, Berlin has grown into a global hub for innovation and entrepreneurship. It's become what some people call the startup metropolis. And the city's universities and research institutions can take a big part of the credit. As the Gründungsumfrage 2020 shows, Startups connected to Berlin's universities earned 8.4 billion euros in revenue in 2019 alone, four times the 1.9 billion euros the state invested in Berlin's universities that same year. And these same startups created more than 62,000 jobs in the local Berlin-Brandenburg region. But it's not just locally through economic dollars in Berlin that startups related to Berlin's universities are having an impact. Using ideas, science, and creativity... Berlin alumni are also working to make the world a better place. They're doing this through social entrepreneurship, as well as new companies and nonprofits that Berlin University alumni are founding all over the world, including in the global south. Ali Mendy from India, Kazi Khalidi from South Africa, Waldo Soto from Chile, and Samuel Knaus from Germany are four of those alumni. And they have in common that they studied or conducted research at Berlin Universities and have put their ideas on how to make the world a better place into action through social entrepreneurship. They are also all participants in a unique workshop taking place in Berlin and online in November 2021 on the topic of social entrepreneurship, which is being sponsored by the German Academic Exchange Service, or the DAAD. Organized by the alumni programs and startup services of Humboldt Universität zu Berlin, Freie Universität Berlin, Technische, Universität Berlin, and Charité. The event is called Tearing Down Walls to Entrepreneurial Ecosystems in the Global South. For five days this November, internationally-based alumni taking place in this event will exchange ideas not only with Berlin startups, but also with each other. They'll sound out possible collaborations, learn from each other's experiences, and expand their networks and connect with the startup institutions of their respective universities. Against this backdrop, today we're going to hear directly from these four individuals and learn about their personal experiences in starting initiatives in the Global South. We'll learn what ideas they have put into practice, what challenges they have faced along the way, and what advice they might have for others looking to put their own ideas into action. First up is Samuel Knaus.
1: My name is Samuel Knaus. I'm a neurologist and global health researcher at the Charité and the Berlin Institute of Health.
0: About a year ago, together with his business partners Julius Emmerich and Alza Ramajazian, Samuel founded a nonprofit business called MTomadi. It's based around helping people gain financial access to healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa, with its current and initial focus being on Madagascar. So how did he start on the journey to being a founder? Well, it came about from working in the field.
1: The project really came out of an uh, experience working as a medical doctor at a nonprofit organization, a environmental organization called Doctors for Madagascar, and we've been active in Madagascar since 10 years. At this nonprofit, Samuel and his future business partner
0: and fellow medical doctor, Julius, were doing classical medical missions. But while doing this work, they noticed another problem. People couldn't pay for the care, even if it was being made available to them. And there's one story in particular that sticks with him from that time.
1: That particular story is from a young lady who gave birth and her bleeding wouldn't stop after delivery. It was a medical emergency. And their organization
0: was running the only ambulance service in that part of the country. So an ambulance was sent out to help the young woman and bring her to hospital. But when the ambulance arrived...
1: The father of that young woman stepped in front of the ambulance and had her put out of the ambulance again because he was so afraid of the costs. He was afraid that the hospital costs would push his family into poverty.
0: And if that sounds like a selfish or unreasonable fear, unfortunately, it is anything but.
1: 1.6% of the population in Madagascar is pushed into extreme poverty each year. Additionally, just by healthcare costs. And that is not specific to Madagascar. That happens everywhere across sub-Saharan Africa and other low-income countries. All of which made him and his partner realize, No matter how much you do for increasing availability of healthcare, if people can't pay, then they won't go and they won't have access. And that made us rethink or rethink the way we do our work and focus also on the financial side of access to healthcare.
0: So along with fellow Charité alumnus Julius Emmerich, they decided to try something out to help with this perhaps even bigger problem of financial access to healthcare. And one thing they saw as potentially helping them in this area was the explosion of mobile technology and the use of mobile money in Madagascar in the last few years. And it really did explode. One hospital they worked with in 2014 still didn't have any cell phones whatsoever. There wasn't even a cell phone tower in the area. But when they returned four years later,
1: half of the revenue of that hospital came in through mobile money and that really made us think that we have to use this technology available so broadly to give people access to healthcare so that is where the idea for M2Money came from to build a system or a platform on top of this mobile infrastructure using mobile money but also other technologies to give people in remote areas access to financial inclusion and in healthcare
0: their first step in this direction was to create a project with the support of the Elsa krona fernese Stiftung. This project involved creating a maternal mobile wallet, where using simple mobile phones and mobile money, pregnant women in the capital region of Madagascar could save up money specifically for their pregnancy medical costs.
1: They got a bonus, so for every euro equivalent they saved, they got 50 cents on top from the foundation. And then through the platform, and they had access to it just with any phone, they just needed to have a SIM card, no smartphone, no internet, uh, just a SIM card. They had access to electronic vouchers, so um, they didn't have to pay for antenatal care visits, and they had access to an ambulance service in case of emergency. That initial project proved to be even more
0: successful than they had hoped. And while they are currently testing it scientifically in a randomized trial to check if it did indeed lead to better health outcomes for pregnant women, the anecdotal evidence has been great. An uptake alone was far greater than they imagined.
1: And that made us decide that we want to take this a step further and build an independent enterprise and also not only provide a mobile health wallet, but also access to other mechanisms of financing healthcare. So insurance, government programs, voucher programs, all different kinds. So they created
0: a non-profit company called mTomati, as a way to create a modular platform for all kinds of financial solutions for accessing healthcare.
1: So we, we have widened the scope and it's now on a modular platform and it can accommodate most of health
0: financing mechanisms. One of the main things that they've done is to work with community and not-for-profit based insurance providers so that people in Madagascar can easily sign up for insurance programs through their phones and be verified quickly. Not only does it make signing up for these programs easier, It also streamlines the technical aspects so that people actually get the coverage that they need
1: quickly. So one insurance we worked with, one of the biggest problem was that even if people are registered to their services, they end up not having access to the insurance because they can't get the insurance card because everything was done paper-based and far away from from the capital. So it took days and then the paperwork was lost.
0: This was especially problematic. In getting people in remote areas with poor road conditions access to healthcare.
1: But if everything is transmitted electronically, this has now sped up the process of registering patients to the insurance and also increased the number of actually insured people actually having access to the insurance. So then
0: I could just show on my yeah. phone, look, I have...
1: Yeah, or you just provide your your phone number and then the eligibility is checked over the tablet of the healthcare provider. So that makes it much easier to register new beneficiaries to an insurance and to make their processes much faster and easier to maintain. And in the end, all the financial transactions can be monitored and done transparently over one platform.
0: Being both financially sustainable and scientifically proven is a huge part of Samuel and Julius's approach to running the nonprofit company. And that's because there's so many examples, examples they have seen firsthand, where promising new digital medical initiatives are created with a grant, run for an initial time, but then get abandoned before too long. In fact, sub-Saharan Africa is littered with such initiatives.
1: Ethiopia, for example, has put a moratorium on new digital health solutions. Because in the end, they had one hospital, they had 200 different interventions running, and few of them really had an active component and could show that they worked. But 200 seems absolutely crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's even a term for what comes out of it, and that's palatitis. So there's so many, especially digital projects, mHealth projects, SMS being sent out to whoever, and they all run for a while. And then they have some kind of monitoring and evaluation part to it. And they say, we reached that many people but very few can show that it actually had an impact on health outcomes. And that's often why they are then abandoned, because in the end you don't know, did it work? Did it have an impact? So why do you pay for a server? Why do you pay for an IT team to maintain it? It's very difficult to justify that. So we believe that actually having scientific evidence of the impact and the cost effectiveness of what we do is extremely important and it's, it's too rarely done. So that's why they partnered with
0: outside institutions to test in a randomized trial if their interventions really do improve health outcomes for the people who receive it compared to those that have not. And it's also what's motivating Samuel to move from just standalone projects based off of one-time grants to larger running initiatives that run under the banner of a nonprofit enterprise so that they will be more likely to be able to sustain themselves financially. So when I asked him what lessons there are for fellow social entrepreneurs thinking of working in the health space, He points out sustainability is key.
1: I think especially in building digital solutions, you always have a huge upfront cost to develop uh, the solution. It's much higher than just going out and doing a voucher program with paper slips. And you probably initially you will reach more people with just handing out paper slips for a voucher program, for example. Instead of building an electronic voucher program, you have to maintain a database, you have to maintain the infrastructure, and so on. So I think this the building a digital tool only makes sense if you plan to scale and if you have a sustainability plan behind it that would allow you to scale the solution. And I think in that sense, a purely project-driven Digital intervention can be problematic if there is no long-term plan or a company behind it that can thrive and that can maintain this and and make it sustainable. So I think to make digital solutions work, it shouldn't be a project. It should be an enterprise that can also generate income to make it sustainable long-term. And that's why we decided to not run this as, a, as an NGO, but as a nonprofit enterprise that we, we want to become sustainable within the country operations within one year. And also eventually, of course, for the entire enterprise.
0: Where are you in that process now or, or like how close or far away from that goal are you?
1: So making the in-country operations and the maintenance of the, of the platform sustainable, I think we're very close. And our target is to achieve this by the end of next year.
0: And at that point, it would be like the whole service and maintenance cost of the platform would be paid.
1: Yeah, and that that would mean that that the platform can run independently, indefinitely. But of course, we want to scale. We want to bring the service to many other countries. And yeah, we have learned a lot in the the last year. But I think now seeing this uh, in action and seeing almost 200,000 people registered on the platform is already a great success.
0: But the scope of the problem is also so huge that it goes without saying that there's also a long way to go.
1: The company was founded this year. So <laughs> it's a very young enterprise. Okay. And I think we are at the very beginning of our journey. We're, we're small, but we see a great potential and opportunity to scale this up in Madagascar nationally, but also to other countries, because the, the need is just immense. And 800 million people have no access whatsoever to essential health care because they don't have financial access. and And that is a gap to fill.
0: Samuel says that it's been an intense journey for the whole team
1: but it's always very rewarding to, to see things that actually work and people are actually wanting the platform. And I think that's motivation for all of us to continue.
0: Now we go from Madagascar to India, where another Berlin University alum is early on in his journey of using social entrepreneurship to help
2: redefine
0: what development
2: means. So my name is Ali Mehdi. I'm a health policy researcher. I also work on global development issues. And in February this year, I established the Inclusive Development Foundation, the IDF, and I've been trying to set it up and, you know, go about it.
0: While the company is new, Ali has been working on development and policy issues for years. He also completed his PhD at Humboldt Universitate.
2: And it was at the intersection of political philosophy, theories of social justice, and child survival.
0: After his PhD at Humboldt, he moved back to India to work in the development sector. And he got a position at an economic policy research institute.
2: It's a very prominent uh, research institution and it works with many organizations internationally. The focus
0: of this institution was largely on economic growth alone and linking India with the larger global economic system. But something felt missing for Ali. Behind all of this talk about growing the economy and improving infrastructure, what he felt the true mission of development should be, human flourishing, was getting lost in the cracks and almost being ignored completely.
2: And so working in this institute for know more than a decade, I felt that the human side, the focus on human agency and human flourishing has been missing. So we somehow assume that, you know, if the nation grows, if there is overall aggregate development and growth, people would automatically benefit. But we have seen from evidence that this does not necessarily happen.
0: So many entrepreneurs get going with their first initiative because they're working in a field or in a job where something doesn't feel quite right or where they feel things could be done better. And that is definitely true for Ali.
2: So, you know, working in that sort of environment, I felt that this focus on individuals and the growth and development is missing. So, so that was a big trigger for me. And I felt that, you know, I need to do something more meaningful. I mean... I was doing good projects there and good work, you know, raising funds for my research and all of that. But, you know, it somehow felt hollow that, you know, I'm not really making a difference to the world. I'm not making a difference to the lives of people around me. So what can I do? So I thought, you know, I need to start up something and we need to develop a health-creating society that leads to human flourishing. So I thought, you know, let me give it a shot
0: So he started IDF as a way to promote a more inclusive and human-focused vision of development. One that doesn't focus just on building bridges and roads and the economy, but creating human flourishing and allowing people to fill the potentials that they want to achieve. So with IDF, he is promoting this vision with a three-pronged approach. Original research, engagement with local people about what their needs and desires are, and action on the ground to help create initiatives that support human flourishing whenever possible.
2: So this is my first attempt, actually. I'm not sure what I will be able to do, but I thought it would be worth it to at least give it a try.
0: It's early on in his journey. In fact, he's just seven months in. But already, it hasn't been without its challenges. Particularly, working in his native country of India has provided no shortage of stumbling blocks.
2: I think the the title of the workshop is very apt. You know, tearing down the walls of entrepreneurship in the global south. Because,
0: well, Ali has been feeling those walls. Even something like opening a bank account has proved less than straightforward.
2: So I have been trying to open a bank account since uh, March. And today we are, you know, on the 8th of October. I've still not been able to open a bank account.
0: And then there are the other regulations that Ali is facing some of which might make Kafka himself blush. For example, because he is registered as a nonprofit, for five years he is not allowed to access international funding.
2: Yeah, so I mean the assumption is that uh, foreign funding undermines national integrity and sovereignty and all of that.
0: Okay, fair enough. So if no foreign funding is allowed, he'll have to rely on local funding for the time being. But to be able to accept local funding, he first needs A tax exemption.
2: So I need to have tax exemption. And to get tax exemption, I need to hire an agency which uh, is asking for 10,000 euros. So, you know, as a startup, I don't have access to 10,000 euros to obtain tax exemption. So it's really difficult, you know, without any funding. So whatever I've been doing so far is out of my own pocket. I have not received a single penny from anywhere.
0: So getting clear of the initial red tape for even getting funded is hard enough. But even basic things like changing the company's official address can prove surprisingly difficult.
2: It's a huge amount of paperwork that is required. Enormous amount of paperwork that is required. So to be very honest, I'm thinking of registering as a for-profit organization because I have asked some people and they say that running a for-profit organization is comparatively easier than a non-profit organization. So, so that is something that I am contemplating at the moment.
0: So what advice would Ali give to someone else thinking about starting something up in India, or maybe a country similar to it? Well, one thing he recommends is to get involved with any industrial associations that are involved with your specific field. This can be a way to help make your voice louder.
2: Because then you can, you know, collectively put up your demands and challenges to the government and... They are more receptive to associations. So if you try to deal with them on your own, you are likely to face more challenges, you know. But if you go collectively, things are much easier.
0: And another thing that he would tell you is, if you can afford it, get a local consultant to help you navigate all the red tape and bureaucracy that's involved with initially setting your company up. After his experience, it's probably worth it.
2: Hire a consultant, you know, who can help you navigate the challenges. So, so that's something that could be very helpful.
0: But get some sort of local help. And regardless, the main thing you need? Patience.
2: Oh yeah, a lot of patience. A <laughs> lot of patience.
0: Now, our first two entrepreneurs, Ollie and Samuel, began their social entrepreneurship initiatives based around problems that they encountered while working in their respective fields. But sometimes an idea goes back for many years, before it finally has the chance to bloom at the right time. And that's certainly the case with our next guest.
3: My name is Wyo Ghazi, commonly known as Wyo, and I am the founder of Anahata Virtual Reality.
0: As Voyo told me, her idea goes back to when she was first starting university.
3: So originally I've always had a passion for wellness and meditation. And when I was younger, about 19 years old, I was like, oh, it would be so interesting to, to help children in hospital, to teach them how to meditate or to teach them certain wellness techniques that can help them during this period to create a better scenario for them whilst they're still in hospital and going through their procedures. Not to disregard the medical side of it, but it does make a difference, the mindset you're in for your healing process. and. I thought it would be so empowering for a child to know that.
0: So that's where the initial idea came from. But when she had this idea, it wasn't so practical to pursue it. She was just in her first year of university. And with the investment her parents had made into her education, she didn't feel like it made sense to drop out. And so she put the idea in the back of her head and she carried on studying. She finished her degree in television production, went to Finland for another program, And then later, she ended up coming to Berlin for an MA program in Visual and Media Anthropology at the F.U., the Freie Universität of Berlin. All the while, the idea lay dormant. But while she was in Berlin studying at F.U., something interesting happened.
3: One of the modules we took was immersive technology, and we learned about virtual reality. And I thought to myself, oh, this is quite interesting. You know, it's originally... Started in gaming, and it's quite a big industry for gaming. But because of how technology has advanced so much, it's kind of leaped into different industries.
0: And one of those industries that VR was suddenly finding new applications in was the health industry. Suddenly, her old idea came rushing back.
3: And I thought, okay, it would be very interesting to create applications that are therapeutic and wellness-orientated applications for these young patients in hospital using VR technology. So yes, that's basically how I merged the two. And yeah, since then, I haven't looked back.
0: She committed herself to the idea and decided she would move back to South Africa to work on it there. But first she decided that she would get some experience. So she got a job in Berlin at a virtual reality production company.
3: So I did some work as a junior producer at a company called NVR Space. I got some connections.
0: And after several months of that, she got on a plane, went back home, and decided to put her plan into action.
3: I decided, yeah, I need to just put a proposal down, put the business plan, make it more tangible in my head as well as for the investors and the future investors. And yes, that's, that's what I did.
0: So now she had her plan and started to look for investors and organizations who could back her idea. But...
3: The more I spoke to different organizations here in South Africa and as well as in Berlin, they they all asked me, okay, but do you have access to markets? Do you have a hospital that you have partnered with that will assist you in working through all the stages? Or, you know, who will you test it on? So
0: she started contacting hospitals, looking for a partner with whom she could develop the technology through its early stages. But finding a hospital to do that with her proved harder than she imagined.
3: And I think the biggest challenge that I've had is that the startup is technology-based, and in South Africa, we aren't as advanced as other countries or other continents, especially in Europe and America when it comes to technology. So when you tell them that, oh, I've got a wellness application that uses immersive technology, and it's going to help improve a patient's feelings, their emotions, or even reduce their pain levels. They were very reluctant. So those are the challenges that I had with a few of the hospitals.
0: A lot of her emails and calls were simply ignored. And some responses were just
3: full-on rejections, or we'll get back to you, and they never get back to you, Which is normal, you know, I, th- I think that it is part of the journey.
0: And did you have to get used to people saying no to you? Was, was that like a, a new experience?
3: Yes. I, I mean, I, I guess it's more of, you know, if you have an idea or a vision and you believe it so much that you want to execute it, it can be very challenging to hear that someone says no or a company rejects you. You know, it, it is a bit challenging where you think, oh, but I actually would assist your patients so much. But that's okay. I think it's, it's all part of the process. Not all doors will open. And it's normal, you know, some people say yes, some people say no. So it's okay. You know, you get used to it and then you cry, but then you wipe your tears off and then carry on.
0: (laughs) But actually, just recently, she's completed that first step. A full year after she contacted her first hospital.
3: This week, I got good news that I I got a hospital that's very interested in working with me. And yeah.
0: Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Often, getting a startup off the ground can feel like you're assembling a big pile of puzzle pieces and you're not quite sure where you should begin.
3: Exactly. Exactly. It's like it's honestly like a puzzle. (laughs) The puzzle I created.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So now Voyo has the hospital on board and is at the pilot and prototype stage, but she is still looking for funding. But one of the interesting things about her approach has been to consciously start her company in South Africa. When, at least on the surface of things, Berlin would seem to be a much easier or more obvious place to do it. After all, Berlin is a hub of software and technology startups. It's more advanced when it comes to VR specifically. And it has more engineers and software developers than where she lives in South Africa. And while she did toy with starting her company in Berlin.
3: Then I thought, no, I'd prefer to have operations in South Africa. That decision was mostly based on the advancement of South Africa and the continent as a whole. If I'm in Europe, you know, it's much easier. There's so many challenges in Africa. But if, if we all decided to do that, then the advancement of Africa would not get anywhere in any industry. So it's important when you think of the ideas that you have and what you want to manifest, that it's not only for yourself but specifically also for your country and the advancement of this continent.
0: But while she left behind Berlin to found the company, her experiences of Berlin and its startup scene have been enormously valuable for her. It served as an inspiration.
3: Definitely, when I was in Berlin, I saw many startups and, you know, just the culture as well. One thing that stood out for me was the age group of all the founders. You know, sometimes you find that the founders are quite young. And they just go for what they want and nothing's stopping them. Obviously, everybody has their own insecurities and so forth, and you don't really see that. But it also encourages you that, you know what, if somebody you know has done it, then it's actually very possible.
0: And what advice would you give someone else looking to start something? Foyo says make sure that you keep your original vision, stay true to it,
3: and keep working with that vision because along the way, you can get discouraged and you can doubt yourself and question yourself. But if you still have that idea that, okay, this is the impact I want to make in my community. If you keep that idea, it somehow will manifest, even though there are certain stages where you think, how does this all come together? But it does start to come together. And that's actually the best part.
0: So hold on to that vision.
3: And lastly, I would say speak to as many people as possible apply to as many workshops, accelerator programs, just get your fingers everywhere because you don't know where an opportunity will actually come and you can meet someone and say, oh, actually, this is lovely. I would love to invest in this. So knock on those doors and eventually the door will be opened.
0: And our final thought is about how we can perhaps make our home countries better, even despite the challenges.
3: I, I would say that. What's very important about being an entrepreneur is finding problems and solving them through your entrepreneurship or through your startup. And Africa has a lot of problems. And I think also Africa has the potential that we can solve these problems in very creative and innovative ways.
0: Our last social entrepreneur is Waldo Soto a social entrepreneur from Chile.
4: My name is Waldo Soto.
0: I'm from Chile, living in Berlin since five years ago. And his inspiration was a frustration. He and his business partner, Gabriela, had already been involved with social entrepreneurship, but they wanted to do things differently.
4: We got tired, again, of this social sector trying to change the world, but the lack of positive outcomes or results.
0: So they founded their company, 2811, a few years ago,
4: specifically to tackle big problems. So we work as an international social change platform, uh, taking specific challenges, like social and ecological challenges, and putting our creative power together to try to solve them.
0: Today, just a few years later, they have a team spread across the globe.
4: So we are today 30 people, actually. We are based in the U.S., Colombia, Chile, and here in Germany. We are three people here, four in the U.S., and the biggest team now is in Colombia, actually, and six in Chile.
0: In the years since their organization, 2811, has been active, they've taken on huge issues like climate change, migration, and water management. They work with other NGOs on finding solutions and do
4: consulting work with governments. So What we do, we we have some services and products that we are selling, like any company, like online trainings, consulting services, and so on. But also, we receive money from development banks or foundations to solve some social
0: and ecological issues. For example, in collaboration with the EU organization Climate Kick, they created the Climate Action Academy, a four-week online course geared towards middle and high school teachers, where the teachers are given ideas for helping integrate information about climate change and climate action into their lesson plans. But so how did he end up being based in Berlin in the first place? Well, part of the reason Waldo came to Berlin to study urban management at the Technische Universität of Berlin was so he could dive deeper into
4: specific problems and get new perspectives. I moved to Berlin to study urbanism, right? To try to understand one more system and to take a closer look to how we can change the things there. And while part of it was to gain new
0: insights specifically into urban management solutions, part of the motivation for Waldo was to just get a new perspective on things overall, simply by living in a new place.
4: There are some studies around creative people, and a lot of innovations are from people that are not from the same city, you know, because they see the things different. You no. Know? And for me, living here really had that impact, you no, know, like, Seeing different structures, like how we organize the neighborhoods, how we organize the city, what kind of actions we can take when the government is doing nothing. So studying urbanism here really gave me that perspective in a way. Waldo
0: is all about different perspectives. Which brings us to another unique thing about 2011. Their goals as an organization go beyond just trying to solve issues. They also want to be a living example, which demonstrates other ways that organizations
4: can run. To try to behave differently so that other startups, other companies, professional consultants, can see how you can create a company differently.
0: Creating differently sounds appealing, but for someone who started an organization dedicated to working on big social problems, Waldo has some ideas that might strike you at first as counterintuitive. And an example of this is that he says to get rid of what he says is the false mantra
4: that you can change the world. First of all, this mantra of that I can change the world. No? And that's maybe a natural thing to feel. No? You read an article in the morning, I don't know, with a problem of migration in, in Colombia, for instance, and you, it's a natural thing to feel, oh, I can do something for this, me personally, no? when it's, that's, I feel at least that's not true. Huh? I cannot solve that, but we can solve that together. And that's a first thing to break as a mantra, I would say. You know? That's interesting because it seems almost like
0: a positive thing, right? Like it, saying, oh, I can change the world. To do that, you have to believe in your own power and agency, which is lacking in a lot of people. Or when that's gone completely, then people don't do anything.
4: Yeah. I think that's a superhero narrative we got that I don't see it helpful, actually. Yeah, It's just taking people to burnout.
0: And so the, the key is understanding that alone you can't do it, but if you combine in a lot of different ways with a lot of different people, then something's
4: possible. Exactly, exactly. And we have to learn to collaborate also, you know, because we are designed to compete. In the, in the social sector, this happens a lot because you have, uh, I don't know, a grant with three spots for three organizations to work in migration so we are designed to compete for those three spots as a social organization. So how do you do it now? We know that we have to collaborate, but the system is still is promoting competition. No? So you have really to find ways of de-learning and learning again how to collaborate, how to radically collaborate with others.
0: And that's a big thing that they work on as an organization. They try not to see themselves as competitors with other organizations and initiatives that are trying to solve the same issues. So Waldo says, don't be afraid to approach other organizations and see if you can work together, even if it means that you take less of a budget when your organization happened to win the grant. And also, Waldo says, social entrepreneurs should watch out for the same pitfalls that plague the rest of humanity. For example, the idea of growth at any cost is something that even people with the best of intentions can fall prey to.
4: We have this obsession for growing faster, growing big, like for getting investments and so on, when maybe that's one of the things that took us to the point where we are today, no? So in that sense, we say, we're going to take a project when we think we have value to add and when we can make it sustainable also, not just taking everything because we want to grow. And maybe sometimes also we're going to de-growth as a company. And of course, we would like to to die in some point as a company because we really want to see the problems solved, no? It's different from when you have, like, big foundations based on the climate crisis. I don't know if those guys want to die as an organization. No, I don't see people around with the aim of closing the organization they are leading, no? Where that should be actually our aim, no? To really solve the things, no? So at least some of the time, maybe success looks a lot different
0: than we originally thought. Maybe it even means dying as an organization in the end. When I asked Waldo what advice he would give to someone who wants to start something, his advice, just start. Don't worry about doing it for too long. Don't overplan it. Just start. For him and his business partner, their idea and company just evolved over time naturally. At least in
4: our case, we didn't have the process of oh, let's think around. We're going to start something. We're going to do it this way. We just started the thing. You know? And there's a huge difference there between doers and thinkers or overthinkers. And I think entrepreneurs, they just do the thing. They don't sit around to think what they're going to do or to start something. Because I see so many people stuck on overthinking what they want to do or how they want to start something. Just try it and you're going to Like, you're going to make so many mistakes that better to do them right now, like, tomorrow, no? Try to start a company here, you're going to discover a lot of things. When you start a company in Berlin. you're going to learn a lot of things, no? So in a way, you have to make your own school, and that can start tomorrow. So start today.
0: Get out there and make something. After all, making a global company or nonprofit that works across borders has never been easier.
4: Everything is there for that. Information is super accessible. You can learn it. Problems are also global. They're not from one country. No, we don't we don't gonna solve the climate crisis here in Germany.
0: So, more than ever, he says, we need to start organizations globally, and
4: that's totally possible today.
0: So there you have it. Four founders working in four distinct fields in four different countries across the globe, each with their own unique experiences and perspectives on getting something going. And are you interested in maybe joining the ranks and starting something yourself? Well, help is closer than you think. Over the last several years, the universities of Berlin have been committing increasing resources to fostering startup culture. At each of the four universities mentioned in this podcast, Freie Universität Berlin, Technische Universität Berlin, Charité, and Humboldt universitat there they're corresponding institutions that are designed to help those interested in founding a company or initiative. And anyone who once studied or worked at one of these institutions, and who is not already a member of their respective alumni programs, can register at these institutions at any time and become part of their worldwide alumni networks. So if it's something you're considering, be sure to check out the organization at your Berlin alma mater. We would like to thank the Berlin Senate Department for Economics, Energy and Public Enterprises for the support in making this podcast. And thanks, of course, to the German Academic Exchange Service for making this alumni workshop possible in the first place. I'm Kevin Kaners. Thanks so much for joining me. Now go tear down some entrepreneurial walls.